Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. It's fucking cold in this room. Absolutely, it is that time of year. The most wonderful time of year. Mm. And speaking of cold <laughs> in certain rooms of the house, today we are discussing the Shirley Jackson classic, The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, with all the hubbubaloo about this Netflix series, we decided we'd take a gander at the source material. Yep. Uh, what's the background on this one, Steve? Um, according to Wikipedia, Shirley Jackson was um, wanted to write a book about researchers in a haunted house. Um, having read a bunch of accounts of Victorian researchers in haunted houses, um, but she wanted to update it for the for the modern times of the fifties. So uh, she has a scientific research of, of haunted houses instead of medium researches of haunted houses. If that makes any sense, makes perfect sense. And and she does compare and contrast the two later on in the story. Yes, in a in a very amusing set of sequences. Right. Uh, this is basically the tale of a group of people uh, brought together by Dr. Montague, right. a, an anthropologist by trade, or a anthropologist by training, psychic researcher by inclination. Yes, the, the thing is that a lot of this seems very um, stereotypical. Right. <laughs> Until you realize that this is the source all of those stereotypes right exactly this is like the origin of psychic research as um for haunted houses mm -hmm. the take basic story ghost. take that ghost. ghostbusters <laughs> ding, ding 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 that's right there are no emf detectors here there are no um well there are some 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 medium ship type stuff later but in general, it is the classic, quote-unquote, scientific way of psychic research, and that is to go to a house, make a bunch of observations, take measurements of anything odd, look for uh, rational, real-world causes. Otherwise, you're just documenting it. It's more, it's, Dr. Montague is being more of a folklorist in approach rather than trying to absolutely prove things or at least that's the impression well, he is, that he's trying to give he is, to his guests he is doing it in a way an anthropologist would do it mm -hmm. he uh he's a content correlator <laughs> as opposed to a uh, measurement taker right right and his his whole thing is is he has to objectively witness a phenomenon to be able to record a phenomenon or somebody has to, because there. he does have his, his quote-unquote assistants mm -hmm. uh, record their experiences with um, ghostly phenomena in the right. house. His his hand-picked assistants. Right, and this is why I mentioned Ghostbusters, because uh, the way that he picked his assistants was very, very reminiscent of that. The Was it the opening scene in Ghostbusters? What, uh, Venkman? Uh, where, where Venkman's, like, doing the card trick to pick up a chick. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, one, one of, one of them, right? 
and the yeah, and electroshock getting them all wrong. Electroshock, yeah, but just the the using that set of cards to right. uh, measure psychic phenomena. I don't know if that was ever a real thing. Um, the Zener card test. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very real thing. Yeah. See, we live in a weird world. Anyway, that's in there. Um, another one of his assistants um, had a history of of uh, poltergeist activity happening around her, mm -hmm. which we'll get into later. Um, and out of all, what was it like? He sent out. It it, it says how many? Yeah, um, it was it was more than a dozen letters. Yeah, and only four responded. Two copped out, and he ended up with two assistants. And then um, a representative of the family mm -hmm. who owns the actual Hill House. Right, the heir apparent. Right, to, to make sure that they don't, they don't uh, fuck shit up. Because it's a valuable piece of property. Right. Even though no one wants to live in it. And, and the current owner of the house does not really want the heir apparent to live there either. Because he's a bit of a scoundrel petty thief and runs with a bad crowd. Yeah, it turns out he's more of us just a rake. Yeah. Should hire him to look at after forests. Mm -hmm. Now, reading reading the book, it reminded me a lot of a lot of the books that I used to read uh, concerning like J.B. Ryan and, and folks like that who at that period of time were going into these haunted houses and trying to make recordings and, and observations of unexplainable phenomena. And in that aspect of it, it was very nice. <sighs> Most of the novel is told from the point of view of a character named Eleanor. Right. Who is this kind of mousy, shut-in type character. Uh, her sister and uh, brother-in-law are not fond of her just being out and about. And in fact, you know, pretty much the only job she ever had was taking care of her uh, ill mother. Right. And you kind of get the feeling that she has spent her life as a doormat, more or less. And mm -hmm. is, uh, this is her first taste of not being a doormat. Right. It, um, really, it's kind of the first taste of freedom. Right. Well, she has a rich inner life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and she is she is a completely unreliable narrator as well. Um, she blatantly lies mm -hmm. um, about her pat her history, her past, um, who she is, what she likes. Um, to I don't know if she's doing it to f make herself feel better. I kind of get the feeling she's doing it to make herself be more important in other people's eyes. And I think because she has spent her entire life caring for her sick mother and taking a, playing second fiddle to her sister, who's considerably older than her, mm -hmm. um, like by five or six years, that she is what you would call a people pleaser. Yes. That, yes. that her, her whole existence is centered around um being nice and 
doing make doing whatever it takes for other people to like her. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the main point of view you get throughout the entire story. Right, right. Um, and also, I would say that the three handpicked assistants really aren't taking this investigation very seriously. No, and it seems like at times you don't really think uh, Montague is either. No, I think I think he's he, well. He's leased the house right. for the summertime, so he's he's take he's being leisurely about it. Yes, where where you know things are. If it's something's going to happen, it's going to happen naturally. As we're here, not you know we're not going to r- bum rush this house and make something happen. Right. Well, he doesn't. But that being said, he doesn't even attempt for any controls any no. sort of structure um he just like it's almost like real world hill house mm-hmm. um he, he just lets them do whatever they want um and i guess it's because he thinks that no matter who's in that house shit's gonna hit the fan eventually right um, because they, they give a little bit of the history of the haunting of the house and it turns out that no one has um stay there for more than like two or three days right um they all end up running off no one has died as a result of this haunting um but there's been some incidents right there have been some incidents and he talks about the history of the house and the the house doesn't have a lot of it's nothing like horrendous right you know um i think it even says that a house that's going to be standing for 80 years, shit's going to happen. People are going to have died in there. Mm-hmm. So that's not what's wrong with the house. Um, he does also mention that all the angles of the house are built in slightly wrong. Right. So it's like it's non-Euclidean. So the, the end result is um, when you're inside the house and you think a room, you think you know where a room is situated um, relative to other rooms, it's not right because the house kind of twists up because of the different angles right it's it's very labyrinthine there are a couple of sequences where the characters are trying to get from a room there they occupy and they they have the parlor or lounge or something like that as their base of operations and you you get the feeling that they have trouble getting around from that room to other rooms, even if they've been in those rooms, um, getting lost on the way to the dining room, for example, happens several times. Uh, and I was at the description of the house, particularly in on Eleanor's arrival and through uh, Dr. Montague's uh, description of the history of the house and the way the house is built, uh, reminded me a lot of the House of Usher. And yeah, and, that, and it really built the house up as an independent character or a a fifth main character. Yeah, it really was. Um, and and the the timbre of the house changes um, the longer they're in it. The, the initial reaction is it's a, this horrible, ugly place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you go on and you get to know the house better, um, there's periods where yes, it's horrible. Um, but for the most part, well, at the very end, and it, it's a 70 year old story, so I think we could spoil this one. 
um, at the very end, Eleanor doesn't want to leave. She loves the house. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, another thing that's interesting about this book is that it is a haunted house book in which no ghosts actually appear. Well, I was gonna I was gonna mention that it reminds me a lot of those stories we read. Was it last year or two years ago? Um, for December. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Oliver, uh, Oliver, Oliver onions. onions. Yeah, where um, you had weird things going on, but there were dual explanations for everything. Could it could have been a manifestation of a ghost, or it could have been um, unreliable narrator. Um, explaining something else that's happening, or it could have been like just sheer um, someone going crazy. Right. Exactly. Or the house itself could just be evil. Right. And, and there's like it's very open ended. There's it's yeah. No. This very well it could have been called a psychotic breakdown in Hill House. And very well. Well, I mean, you know, that's one of the ways people are described when they have uh, mental issues is sometimes they are haunted. So it, it's it's cool that it like kind of expands upon this haunted house tradition mm -hmm. um, that goes back a while. Right. Oliver Onions. And uh, what was the other one we read? Uh, the Rose Garden. The Rose Garden, uh, where you have this duality, is it? Is it really haunted? Is it just somebody being paranoid? Um, and and that tradition, like at, in the best of of the genre, happens to continues to happen today. There are some ham hands who will give you, um, yes, of course it's haunted. Right. That's why you picked up the fucking book, Amityville Horror. <laughs> Right, right. And really until Eleanor uh, begins to really love the house, which is which is the trigger of the climax of the book, you do have the feeling that this could all be a true story up to a certain point. Uh, much like Amityville, even though proven not to be true later, uh, was supposed to be based on a true story, like The Exorcist was supposed to be based on a true story. An actual case file, right? Um, you you have the you have the feeling reading the Haunting of Hill House that this could have been a fictionalized version of an actual uh, paranormal investigation. I think actually, you know, even past that, the point I think you're talking about, you can still get away with that uh, because uh, towards the end, all the phenomena that happen in the house can be attributed to um, Eleanor's breakdown. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the house appears to focus in on her. Right. Um, like, for, for example, uh, there is writing that appears in blood on the walls uh, that sounds like her mother trying to call her back, her dead mother, mm -hmm. uh, trying to call her back home. Um. All of the, the phenomena that happen, um, that we are privy to, happen from Eleanor's point of view. And there's a few instances where no one else, even people in the room with her, 
mm -hmm. um, do not experience what she experiences. Right, exactly. Um, and it's also interesting that, that the Chekhov's gun technique is used um, kind of in the background. Uh, the messages in blood uh, happen after Eleanor gets her toes painted by Theodora. Uh, the message in chalk on the wall is appears after the professor or Dr. Montague is measuring a cold spot in, in a hallway with measuring tape and chalk. Chalk, yeah. And we know that Eleanor incorporates things that she observes in her life into her stories. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the cup full of stars um, when she's at a, at a diner. There's a couple with a kid across from her, and the kid doesn't want to drink her milk because it's not in her special cup, which has stars on the inside. Right. When she drinks it, she sees stars. And, and, um, and Eleanor absorbs this into her own life story. Right. Uh, she also describes the apartment that she does not have mm -hmm. to, uh, to um, everyone as having uh, two white lions on the mantelpiece which she took from a house which she has a little fantasy about living in and taking care of the, um, the, the white the lion statues in the garden mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah so, so she she definitely has a history of uh, incorporating uh, stuff from the real world into her fantasies right and and simply uh, her fantasies are there to make her life a appear more interesting well interesting and probably more uh her able to cope it, it, mm -hmm. i don't think like she leads the the uh most satisfying of lives like we said before um i think that if she were if this were today and she were on facebook she'd be posting um nihil nihilist memes <laughs> not ironically Right, right. She'd be posting No Lives Matter. Yeah. And, and shit like that. Now, reading this book, I can understand why liberties were taken when adapting it to the Netflix series. Um, a lot of folks, that's one of their big complaints is that they changed it too much and, and made a 10-episode series that was wholly unlike the book. But I don't think you can make a 10-episode series or a 10-hour series of this book um, and make it wholly faithful to the book because I don't think anybody would really watch well, it. Well, it's a, what, 150-page book? Yeah. I mean, I think it takes six hours to read. Uh, yeah, 132 pages. Right. Yeah, so it's not that long of a book. And there were two movies already made. Uh, one mm -hmm. of them is, is lauded, the first of the two. The, right, the 1963. Um, as, as a masterpiece of haunted house filmmaking. And the second one was panned as a film of what not to do when you make a uh, film about a haunted house. So, right. Um, you got to ask yourself, was there even a need for um, this adaptation? Uh, uh, full disclosure, I tried to watch it. Got about a half hour into the first episode and thought it was boring as shit. Mm. I did not attempt. Uh, Mia did, but uh, 
yeah, I didn't see anything on the screen that caught my interest. So I, I did not watch the series. So we're just going by uh, critical reviews, right? Yeah. Critical reviews I, of you know of it from our circle of friends who are into these these sorts of things and and these event series. Um, but yeah, I could I you know I would say that it probably wouldn't turn out well if you had done a ten hour version of this book and made it one hundred percent faithful. It almost seems like they could have made what they made, mm-hmm. not named all the characters after characters in this book, and just left it at that and called it just something else. You know, a strange obviously, phenomena at jo- well, the Jones residence. Right. Now, obviously, you they wanted it for name recognition. Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, of all the modern haunted house stories, this is the modernist and haunted it. Yes. Mm-hmm. But seriously, this is the one that launched a thousand ships. Without this, you don't have The Shining. I, I've read The Shining, mm-hmm. and without this, you don't have The Shining. Right. Speaking I'll give of, you that. Sp- speaking of um, books about that just completely decide not to give you that ambiguity of whether the, the thing is haunted or not. Mm-hmm. That's the shine. The shine right. is this, but it's definitely haunted. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And they, they get into that quick. He's like, okay, we're going to settle this fact. Yes. The shit is real. Yes. And whether or not the shit is real is one of the things that actually drives this book along. Because you don't know, and neither do the characters. But that's like the, like you said, this is, that's what makes it fun to read. Mm-hmm. That's what makes you think while you're reading the book. Right. And that's what gives you something to think about and to ponder afterwards. Is it haunted? Is she, is she just a loon? Right. Is she having a breakdown and like having like this, this uh, tale of the haunted house? Uh, does that help facilitate her her breakdown? Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about the character of Doctor Montague's wife? Uh, <laughs> um, she was funny. She was she funny. Was, she, Doctor Montague's wife. For those of you who haven't read it, comes in and she is a believer. There is not a damn thing scientific about her approach. She is, but she. There isn't, but she she acts like there is. She acts like she's the most organized. She knows exactly what to do. She's done it a dozen times. And you think, oh, she's going to set up the EKG machines and the infrared and all that crap. Uh, but no, she brings a Ouija board. Right. <laughs> that's that's her. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not a Ouija board. I don't know if we had a Ouija board at yeah, it's, the time. It, it's the... Um, it's, but it's, it's called one Shet. Yes, and and they refer to it as an individual planchette, uh, and uh, like do a not upset planchette. You know, planchette is very sensitive. Right. Uh, this is the style of planchette that is um, a device uh, with a pencil in the in the point, which you use like the planchette of a Ouija board or a talking board. Right. And, Instead of pointing, though, it writes it out. Right. It actually writes out what's being answered on a sheet of paper now i will say 
that uh, Montague, Dr. Montague, could probably have a very good case uh, for divorce and getting everything. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, she she is she walks in like a freaking storm. Uh, you know, who's taking our bags? You know, go park the car. No, oh, we don't leave the house after dark. That's one of the rules that we established. Oh, what are you, a coward? Come yes, on. Very She's with her, her friend who's a manly man. Yes. Yes, quite so. Yes, I have my Webley, trusty Webley. He's the he's the Call of Cthulhu character who has no reason to be armed, but comes armed anyway. That's Wes metagaming. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mister Andrews, I believe his name is, um, is is very much Wesley's character. Yes, I speak Egypt. No, I didn't know our characters were going to go to Egypt. <laughs> I speak Egypt. I speak Egyptian. Coptic. Jesus Christ, man. It's cold in this room. <laughs> That's my excuse. Yes. Um, yeah, overall, I didn't find it to be a very satisfying read. Uh, maybe because it is old. Uh, maybe because what Shirley Jackson was trying to do with the characters didn't speak to me in any way. Uh, but this book does have a very rabid fan following amongst the I, horror community. I think a lot of it has to do with that um, it's not 1959. Um, much the same way that my son reacts to reading um, H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it does, it's not... There's been so much done past this that when you read the the origins, it's not as, it's not as thrilling. Because you've been there before. Right. Um, I mean, you know, it's just like the, the fall of the House of Usher. Um, you know, I like the... I was intrigued with the descriptions of the house and the house being a character. But when it started focusing in on the human beings, I, I was not... Uh, I started losing a little bit of interest. Uh, because, yeah, I wanted to know more about the house. I didn't want to know about the human beings. Well, you know, because, that, because a lot of the interactions between the human beings, and I mentioned earlier that they didn't take the investigation seriously. They're off, you know, having picnics and exploring the garden and just having these really inane fucking conversations about random ass shit that, you know, it's like. They do have a lot of subtextual conversations that end up biting them in the ass later on. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, actually, that's one of the things I really liked about this was that every relationship that Eleanor um, began, mm -hmm. I guess, um, completely fell apart in the um, in like a ironic way, um, mainly because like all of her 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 part of that relationship is based on lies. Right. So, um, you know, her and Theodora were, were you know, initially close uh, for no other reason than, you know, I guess Eleanor was never close to anyone before. Right. And and Theodora is a very uh, gregarious right. type of individual. Uh, she, and she's very urbane, very gregarious. And, you know, she's going to, 
you know, react that way to to this uh, this woman, and mm -hmm. you know, bites her in the ass. So we're once um, Eleanor believed them to be close. Really, they weren't. How close can you be after twenty minutes of knowing somebody? Um, she she starts to get thoughts about how Theodore is um, actually trying to betray her and they're making fun of her mm -hmm. when you know really maybe a little bit but not a lot it's um it's almost like their relationships i don't know if you experienced this but one of the reasons i stopped smoking pot was because i would get paranoid mm -hmm. when i smoked it and i would think um really dark thoughts about everyone around me and our relationships right and this kind of reminded me of of that uh, later stage marijuana use where you're just paranoid about everything around you every little thing that happens has some hidden meaning right that, that very self-consciousness stage yeah and so, but it's really since we we're we're getting all of the story from Eleanor's point of view somewhere inside of her head and we don't know that anything that actually happens happens we don't know if any of the conversations with any of the other characters are real um you know i have a feeling that eleanor is maybe a bit younger or a bit less mature than some of the other characters Right, she claims her age is 32 at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and that was um, in her own mind. Um, I guess uh, Theodora called her like 34, 36 or something. She said, oh, I missed it by four years or whatever. Right. Right, and, and everyone else seems to be, I, I, I guess the word for it would be naive. She's, you know, her given her background that she's pretty much a shut in. Um, she doesn't grasp the interplay of the relationships. Um, yeah. you know, the doctor and and Luke, the heir apparent to the house, seem to have more. They just kind of like bond with each other. In fact, they arrive at the house at the same time. Well, they they I mean they do like. You know, they bond over chess. Right. They Which they what, they, they like chess. They like drinking liquor. They like right. reading books. I mean, books. that's like, you know, that's like guys bonding over football or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, you know, it, it's like this shared male experience. Right. They're friends because they're guys. Right. Even though Luke does eventually um, go off with Theodora and Eleanor. Off on their little adventures, right? Yeah, that's the thing. It's like she falls in love with Luke and and makes this fantasy of how um, he likes her as well. Mm -hmm. When in in reality, I don't think he looks at her that way at all. Um, I, I have a feeling that Luke being described by the omniscient narrator in the beginning of the book, because we do get a different point of view in the setup. Right. Where all the characters are, are brought that Luke was probably willing to do whatever it took to get in the dumb girl's pants. Yeah, he was, a, he was definitely a little rakish. Right. And, and he, he, he found a target. 
And that's the way it felt like that's the way it felt to me is that Luke was almost predatory in in the way he went about his relationship with with Eleanor because he was very very caddish. He was very much a cad and and rakish. Yes. Well, I think and, he was trying to to um get with either or both. Oh, possibly, possibly. Um, um you yeah. know, and I think I think Eleanor picked up on the relation uh, or not the relationship, but like um the the flirtatious um aspect of Theodora and and Luke. Right. And that fed into her her thinking of uh, Theodora's like betraying her. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Are you trying to steal my boyfriend? It's like yeah, sort of sort of thing. Because and there, there is that, that one point where Theodora is just like, how could you even think he would end up with you? He's an heir. Who are you? You live in a one bedroom apartment, which turns out she doesn't even have that. Right. Exactly. She has a bedroom. Right, in her sister's house. Right. So she resents ultimately. So overall, you have you have an interplay, a dynamic of a bunch of characters that the professor is the only one that you really, you know, can for me anyway can tolerate. Kind of, yeah. he's kind of a ding dong. Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of an absent-minded professor. He's, hmm, yes, we're going to go about this in a very scientific way. Yeah. But first, tea and cakes. You should never leave at night, but I'm not going to tell you why. Right, because I don't want to influence you by saying that this house is haunted, but it's definitely haunted. That's why we're here in the first place. But I don't want to tell you anything about the actual haunting itself because I don't want to influence your your little in, insignificant minds. But in doing so, he may very well have influence, at least Eleanor's insignificant mind, uh, because, you know, she flips out. Oh, yeah. But, you know, she's already susceptible. And you have a lot of strangeness going on throughout the book. Eleanor comes into town. The town that Hill House is near, um, are, these people are not very you know very welcoming they they don't like outsiders like a lot of little towns right um you know they don't hell you don't really even know that the house exists because nobody in the town even mentions it right so it's it's quite possible that the entire book is a figment of eleanor's imagination it could be you have to have something to grasp on to right because she keeps repeating this one phrase um that the little love poem. Yeah, the journey's end. Right. And the lovers meet. Yeah. Which is why I kind of think that she had stars in her eyes for Luke. Well, from the beginning, since, you know, since she was talking about that poem the entire time over the drive. Yeah. Um, and it's also perhaps that she steals the car and just drives off and the rest the and the whole, half hers. it was half hers, but <laughs> she took it, she took it without their, without her sister's knowledge because they were going out of town on a vacation. Yeah. So, you know, that also lends a little bit to the idea that the whole thing occurs inside of Eleanor's head is that she 
you know, her road trip is just, you know, her appropriating her sister's road trip into her fantasy. And she steals the car and she goes off and she has this adventure. But, you know, you don't really know for sure. Uh, you know, I mean, even even the fact that her brother-in-law uh, did a background check on Dr. Montague. You don't really know that that's true. That's true. But you also don't really know if you actually read the book at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. So it's it's one of those types of situations that you you're reading the book and you really don't know what's going on. And that's no, probably this, one of the things that makes this book stand out and last over the years is that you can read the book and come up with any variety of interpretation. And it there's something in the book that will back up any any of your interpretations. Yes. Now, if Gene Wolfe had written this book, that would just like probably rip rip open a uh, a portal in the time space continuum. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I mean, really. Think about it. This is exactly the the playground that Gene Wolf likes. Yeah, this is very much this is very also um, in the vein of the Land of Lost, uh, where you really have no idea exactly what's going on. All sorts of things are are happening, and it's up. It's really up to the reader to correlate the content to figure out what's going on. So now, the big question. Better or worse than the lottery? Because I figure everyone's read the lottery. Well, everybody has. It was it was a school textbook. That's right. But um, I'm sure everybody's read this as well. So Right. Well, I had never read it before, so it was new to me. I hadn't either. So, you know, it's like broadening the horizons and reading the classics. Um I don't know if you can because because it's a different form. It's it's a longer form, um, different kind of subject matter. You really, I can't. I don't think you can do a comparison of the two. Fair enough. I wasn't expecting an answer. Oh, that was a rhetorical <laughs> question. Yes. Come on, this is a talk show. There's no uh, there's no room for rhetorical questions. There's no fighting in the war room. That too. But overall, if you haven't checked this book out, oh, it's it's definitely I liked it. It's worth reading just for the sheer fact that um, you're looking at the the foundation of a lot of of the stuff that you end up reading. And anyway, like mm -hmm. I said, the shiny Ghostbusters. Um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Right, House. Ding dong. You're dead. So, yeah, if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and check it out. If you've read it before, go ahead and read it again for the first time. 
And that is The Haunting of Hill House by the famous Shirley Jackson. And please join us next time. And until then, keep 30 luck points.